You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. An amazing episode coming up for you. It was the anniversary on October 3rd of the Battle of Kamdesh in Kop Keating in Afghanistan. So excited to tell the story. We've actually been chasing this story for a while now. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But before we get started with the episode, a couple of reminders. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. The rating doesn't have to be anything long. Just let us know what you like, what you don't like about the show, and give us as many stars as you can. Well, because that will help us grow this podcast and continue to grow the Hazard Ground community. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Sponsors tab at the top of the homepage or scroll down to the bottom of the homepage. Click on that Amazon button. Do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend and we'll donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. And by the way, that also works on your smartphone. On your smartphone, if you go to the website, hazardground.com and click on the Amazon button, it will take you right to the app on your phone. So easy shopping, very convenient. We love to hear feedback from you guys. So send us an email to producer at hazardground.com. And we will certainly respond to you guys, but we continue to get guest suggestions. We continue to love to interact with people. So don't hesitate to reach out to us personally and tell us what you like and what you don't like about the show. All right, that's it. I'm done talking. So excited for you to hear this episode. Buckle in for an amazing story that you're about to hear. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a man whose story I've been very excited to tell. It involves combat outpost Keating in Afghanistan in October of 2009. It was his lone deployment overseas. He is a former Army First Lieutenant. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, which is the second highest military award for valor just behind the Medal of Honor. He is Andrew Bunderman joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Andrew, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. appreciate it. All right. Again, I, I have uh, told you that I am so excited to hear this story. I, I've seen it, you know, told many different ways. And for those who may not be familiar, the Battle of, of Cobb Keating, Combat Outpost Keating, or Battle of Kamdesh, as it's referred to, produced two other Medal of Honor recipients, including Clint Romache and Ty Carter. You were their platoon leader. And I, I got to tell you, honestly, when I uh, the, the show Medal of Honor on Netflix, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it or not. Um, but, you know, that's when I, one of the first times I came across this story. And I got to tell you, when you started speaking, I looked at it and said, that's the guy I want to talk to. As much as, you know, Clint Romache and Ty Carter have their own stories, I think your point of view on this story is so important. Because, and back me up here, Clint and Ty are very sort of, you know, reserved about their story, right? Like, they don't want to take all the glory that comes with a Medal of Honor and things of that nature. But I just feel like you're... Um, your point of view on this thing is so critical to tell because uh, from the leadership standpoint, you know, your role was vital to keeping your men alive. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, you, you highlighted a couple things there. Yeah. I mean, Roe and Ty are, are pretty fantastic uh, guys in the sense of what they accomplished um, in, in that time frame and in that particular snapshot in particular uh, and, and a lot of things across the rest of their army career. But since then, they, they do a really good job highlighting um, all the good work that soldiers do. So I appreciate the effort they they put forward there. And, I mean, 
I think it's a it's a different just a little bit of a different point of view to to your point in the sense that um, experience a lot of those things, but you when, when you're kind of the the leader of something like that, you're certainly carrying a different point of view and a different look, and and certainly trying to accomplish maybe different things at different times, and so it's a little bit. Um, it can be a very different picture that you see sometimes. So it's um, it's kind of it's kind of good to piece some of those different things together and, and get an idea of what that looks like. All right. Uh, before we get into you know uh, Cobb Keating and, and everything that went on there, uh, let's go back to uh, how it all started for you. How and why'd you get in the army? Man, you're dragging it out of the vault. Um, <laughs> so so I. Um, I was a, a book nerd growing up uh, in northern Minnesota, and generally speaking, uh, I read a lot of a lot of nonfiction books, and and primarily around World War II and um, the concept of what what those soldiers and Marines were doing um, really got me into the idea of serving, and so then I just kind of went to continue down that path of admiring that, that look and everything and what it was going to be like. And, um, I got about 16, 17 and, you know, it was very fresh after nine 11 at that point in time, uh, trying to make some decisions about my future. And I mean, I really did want to go to college in the same vein. So, um, saw this ROTC path and, uh, <laughs> Oddly enough, I was going to try to join the Navy, and, and they said my grades weren't good enough. Uh, so I, I ended up in Army ROTC at the University of Minnesota. And uh, looking back on it, it absolutely was the best decision for me, right? I mean, I am eternally grateful that I, I went that path and the Army was there for me and, and ready for me to, to join that team. Um but it was something I wanted to do since I was, like I said, since I was younger and fortunately was able to combine a bunch of different stuff that interested me and uh, was able to commission out of the University of Minnesota there. A couple of things. One, you know, uh, I, I felt the same way after I got commissioned about ROTC that you did in the sense that, like, I got to go to regular college and you know what? I get the same paycheck you West Pointers did, right? Like, why go through all that that stuff at West Point? And listen, West Point's a great honor, but... There are certain people who made for it and certain people aren't. I love the experience of college. ROTC was great for me because I got to go to college and get the same commission everybody else got. So me being a punk 21-year-old, I looked at those guys and going like, boy, you guys are stupid, man. You got to miss out on everything I got in college. And guess what? We get the same paycheck as second lieutenants. But um, <laughs> the other piece that I do, it's funny because I was uh, during ROTC when I went to advanced camp, I'll never forget. I went to school with this kid from Mankato State University. He was in my, uh, he was in my advanced camp uh, uh, regiment. And, uh, I never forget Mankato state because he just had that thick Minnesota accent, you know, um, that that's almost Canadian to it, to an extent. And every time somebody brings up Minnesota, it's the first thing I think of is Mankato state because, uh, remember during advanced camp, I don't know if you had to do it, but we had to always announce, you know, cadet so-and-so and whatever school you went to before you ever spoke. And, and he always would say Mankato state. And so I know it's a, a thing there right next to the U where you grew up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Mankato is just a, a quick blast down the, you know, about an hour down the highway. So that's kind of that's kind of funny, you know. And depending on which part of the state you're from, some of those accents are pretty out of control. You know, I'm glad <laughs> they got rid of the the requirement of, of belting out your name and uh, university before you said anything. By the time I got there, oh uh, yeah. Plus. I mean, he he I, I, he just always said, you know. 
He was like, Cadet Jones, Mankato State University. And I'm like, dude, where is this guy from? I was like, where the hell is Mankato? You know, I'm an idiot New Yorker growing up. I'm like, where the hell is Mankato State? Anything that's like West of New Jersey, I didn't consider existed as a kid that age. Yeah. So um, it yeah, was just it always <laughs> stuck with me. Yeah, I guess that's what they made Google for, so you can figure that out quickly, right? <laughs> All right, so you get commissioned. What year and month is this? Uh, I commissioned in you know May of 2007. Okay. And you were headed to 4th Infantry Division, correct? Um, yeah, wow. Man, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I, I commissioned. I graduated on like a Wednesday. I commissioned on a Friday, two days later, and then I jumped in the truck um, like three days after that and drove out to Fort Lewis. Okay. And I had to spend uh, like the first three months out there working as cadre for for Warrior Forge. They changed the name, but essentially advanced camp, right? Um, and so I was cadre there, and then I went to Fort Sill for for bulk two, and then I went down to to Fort Knox for uh, armor school. Um, and yeah, originally my orders were going to be my first, you know, official duty station was going to be uh, supposed to go to Schweinfurt, Germany. Um, oh wow. And I got I got switched out with maybe a month left in Bullock Armor School at yeah. Bullock Three. <laughs> it happens. It, it happens to every lieutenant class goes through it. It's funny. I got you beat. I graduate. I was commissioned on a Friday. I graduated on a Saturday. Was in the army on Monday on active duty. That's how fast it happened for me. Yeah, it's uh, it was a, it was a crazy week to say the least. But so yeah, and we had guys who also lost their their slots of where they wanted to go. Um, during what we called OBC, I'm a little bit older than you are, Andrew, but, um, yeah, cause I remember when you do your OML list of like where you want to go, your order of merit list as a cadet, my first six choices were all in Germany. I got freaking none of them. I got Fort Hood, Texas. <laughs> so when they, when they came out switching people, I'm like, can I go to Germany? Can I go please? Yeah. I mean, um, it would have been fun, you know, but I, it, I you know, the nice thing is I didn't get, uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, nothing against Fort I ended up with Fort Carson, so it it, uh, it was a good consolation prize, to say the least, right? Wow, yeah, and that's like probably the best post in the Army as far as – I've never been there, but I've, it's what everybody says. I, I know we loved it there, right? I mean, it was um, – Colorado Springs is great. Uh, we're big outdoors people, so there was a ton of stuff to do within, you know, three hours. You could pretty much do anything, whether it was winter or summertime. Post is beautiful, um, and yeah, so it was it was real nice. So when do you actually get to Fort Carson after all schooling, Bullock, and everything else? Uh, you know, it's about March or April of 2008. All right. And so what, I mean, you know, you're a brand new second lieutenant, you're there. Uh, when do you start hearing the ideas of deployment? I mean, obviously you knew at this point in time you were going somewhere at some point. Iraq's still going on, Afghanistan's still going on. What What are you hearing as as soon as you get there, if anything at all? Yeah, I mean, the unit was actually rotating in and out of block leave um, when I got there because they had just returned from Iraq. Um, and so it was it was like empty when I got there, right? You know, half the unit's gone. There's a few people here and there. There wasn't a lot of folks around. So, um, but then, you know, you say, hey, well, get told essentially, hey, early 09, you know, it's going to be an Afghan tour, right? And that was the extent of, I mean, I knew that within the first couple of days we got there because it was already slated as far as it, it's going to be in 09 or, you know, in 2009, it'll be a leave sometime in Q2, Q3, you know, somewhere there. And, uh, 
and that was the extent of it. Obviously, didn't really know about where mission particulars, et cetera. I, I didn't get that for, for a good several months later, but generally speaking, it was pretty much already known about that year out of, of where the unit was going to be going. When you start training for that whole deployment, um, and, and, and to, you know, to this point in your life, obviously never having deployed, do you feel like the training is, is worthwhile? Do you feel like it's useful? Like, are you actually, you know, feeling prepared for this whole thing? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And um, probably depending on who you talk to, it's, it's varying degrees of, of an answer. To me, I did. Um, now, I, I am a little bit of an unusual circumstance in that I, I was a, I went and got my XO time. So I was a HHTXO for like seven months. And then I went to a platoon leader in fall of, of um, 08 there. So about maybe five months, six months before we left. So you did it backwards, I, I, actually. Yes, 100%. Right. And that was just based on the number of second lieutenants that were there and kind of the, the way things were lining up. And so um, by the time I got there, I'd, I'd been dealing with some different things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have uh, had some experience in. I think that was helpful for me, but um, I, I think the training was was good. Um, at the time, I thought some of it was weird, like, hey, why are we going to Fort Polk for this, right? We're literally in, in the perfect location to be doing this kind of terrain here in Fort Carson. But right. um, when you start looking at, you know, small unit maneuvering and the level of kind of the way they're setting up off four and all that type of stuff. It made sense in hindsight. Um, but I, I thought a lot of the way that the brigade and the squadron set up the training profile and the way Colonel Brown really set up what he wanted soldiers to be really bad. Right. I mean, when I look back at how well, you know, the level of in shape, right. Physical fitness level was at, um, the ability to shoot, move, and communicate, right? I mean, just the fundamentals that were the high level of focus, um, pretty well prepared uh, to, to go on that tour. Now, it was my one and only one, so, I, you know, take it for what it's worth, but I, I didn't feel, you know, not ready. Right. And, and listen, I, I asked that question, obviously, because as you, the story unfolds, I'm curious to know, how what you trained for prepared you for what actually happened. Um, and that's not just the, the, the combat itself, just in general, you know, day-to-day operations. So you're doing all this train up and lead up. When do you start hearing and what are you hearing about specific mission and when you go and how quickly or how soon to when you actually leave, do you start to find this stuff out? You know, I think right around the end of the year. Um, so four or five months out, we're starting to get a little more, you know, an, an advanced force and went for a couple of weeks to check it out you know, the leadership team to, to go on site and then they came back. But I would say around the end of the year, right, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas um, of 08, end of, of 08 yeah. is really when we started to get in, hey, you're going to be in these locations. Uh, still didn't fully know, you know, Bravo Troops going to be at, at Keating and Apache is going to be at Lowell and, you know, Cold Blood is going to be doing this. We didn't have all those details yet, but you started to see the, the, uh, kind of the breakout of, of the, the landscape and um, the battle space and what, what we're going to be dealing with right around that time frame. So, um, and then we started to obviously start to see what the timeline of 
you know, final train up uh, is going to look like, and then, you know, when, when we're going to start sending people and how that's going to look. So right around the end of the year, it really started to firm up, though. So is there a point where in getting all this, this information prior to leaving, where you have a thought in your head where you're like, you know, it gets you like, okay, uh, yeah, this is, uh, it's going to get real, real fast for me. Like, do you have that sort of moment in recognizing, and I'm asking you before you left that like, all right, we, we are, we're being presented with a task that may seem insurmountable at this time. So I don't don't think I thought about it like that. I I was excited because I was going to be dismounted for the most part. Um, And I obviously had a lot of guys that had been in previous year groups and um, were in touch. And, you know, you you heard the stories about essentially just driving up and down routes in Iraq. And I I really was not super excited to go tackle those types of missions. so I, I was excited in the sense that it was a kinetic battlefield or something maybe closer to a traditional battlefield where um, maybe you got to kind of slug it out a little bit in the sense where it wasn't just kind of a surprise thing. And so I didn't look at it like it was going to be an insurmountable. I looked at it like it, it set up well for what I thought I was pretty good at or what I thought I was going to be pretty good at. Because um, to that point in time, I didn't know, right? I mean, sure. Uh, but but from what I thought I was good at, I thought I was going to set well up, and and particularly in kind of my style, um, I was I was happier with that. So I didn't look at it like that. Um, kind of knew the terrain was going to be pretty intense. Um, I don't think I was quite ready for how it was all laid out. I I, I knew mm-hmm. that things were not you know perfect, and and you had to work around stuff, but I didn't expect it. To, you know, you almost constantly be in a non-dominant situation. Well, I think I, that was probably the biggest thing I didn't expect. That's my that's my next question because uh, you know I, I I experienced some of that during my first deployment where you know you get pictures and people show you things. You know, I don't know if you went on the pre-deployment site survey or not, but I didn't go on mine, uh, and I didn't even have one on my first tour. So, um, but you know, you start to understand things and you see pictures and you talk about it and people tell you about it when you, when you're communicating with the unit that you're going to, you know, um, rip out with, you know, replace in place for the civilians listening is rip. Um, and when you get on ground and you stand there and you look around and you go, holy shit, uh, the pictures never did this justice. Now, and I can tell you that just from studying up on this and looking at cop keating um i mean i i I, knowing what i know of combat and again i i can look at this now and go what the hell was somebody thinking um as far as putting something here um did you ever have that when you get on ground did you have that thought of you know damn i mean i know it was gonna be tough but this is a whole different world of tough yeah so i didn't go on the survey obviously we sent people but um and we got the pictures and the videos and conversations and uh, very similar experience to what you referenced. It, it, it did not do it justice. And certainly that caught me significantly by surprise, not in the sense that I didn't know it was coming, that we were going to be in a bad location. I just didn't think it would be that bad. Um, so, so that, that, that was definitely interesting. Um, 
I mean, and when I arrived, you know, to, to cop Keating, you know, showed up in the middle of the night, zero loom, um, you know, it was you, you you're, you're the LZ the outside of the, the gate, right? So mm-hmm. you're, you're going over a bridge in the middle of the night, hauling all this crap. Um, but it was, it was something else, but, um, you get there and, you know, you take the 10 minute tour and then you hunker down for the evening. And then the next morning was really, you, you kind of wander around and you're like, wow, this is, this is genuinely, there's a word that you can say simply and you can say it on a podcast. You're fucked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is different, I guess, than live radio, isn't it? No, yeah, it's a lot different than live radio. I mean, listen, and, and I, I want to draw this picture clearly for people who aren't in the military listening. Um, where Cop Keating was, uh, and, you know, Andrew, feel free to jump in here and, and give some of the finer points of, uh, you know, uh, FM 7 8, if you will, but, you know, uh, this thing is sitting on the bank of a river. It's surrounded by mountains on three sides. So you're at the bottom of a valley. Um, there's only one sort of access point, as you talked about, in and out. And it is on the northeast border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. And before we get to the strategic stuff, but just think about this, folks. Like, again, for the people not military, imagine being at the bottom of a hill and staring up and having nowhere to go if somebody comes down that hill except right into gunfire. Like, this is a, a, a highly indefensible position um, that, that they have put you guys in. And they had had trouble in the years pre, prior to you guys getting there at that post. Now, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, they had a lot of support from the Afghan locals um, in, in years past that it was a much different environment. But as Afghanistan, you know, much like Iraq escalated 05, 06, 07, Afghanistan escalated like, you know, 09, 010, 11 kind of deal. And so, yeah. um, you, you know, you guys were, were there when people were there before and having trouble defending it, they had some support from the Afghan locals. But I mean, I, I just look at this and oh, by the way, when we say mountains, folks, you are talking about, you know, this isn't like a gradual incline. This is a steep as all hell, rocky terrain that, you know, even the most avid rock climbers would look at as a severe challenge. Like you can't traverse these hills with any sort of speed or efficiency. And so... You know, again, Andrew, again, jump in and kind of just talk about the the literal insanity that putting you in this position, you know, from a from a pure combat standpoint, you know, how how all the deck was stacked against stacked against you. Yeah, I mean, from a tactical level, there was nothing good about it, right? I mean, there there just wasn't. Um, and and I mean, you, you illustrated. You know, there was a fork of the river, um, and then there's high ground on all three sides. And it's not, you know, hey, it's a rolling gentle hill. It's it's significant rock terrain. I mean, in the sense that all the paths going up them or ways you would traverse it were essentially switchback, right? So you, you couldn't go straight up it. It was too steep to do that. And I'm not talking about like a vehicle. I'm talking about just walking, right? So um, everything was switchbacked. Uh, travel was pretty pretty slow, uh, in and out. So, I mean, from a tactical standpoint, yeah, there, it was piss poor, right? There was just nothing good about it. You know, when it was set up years prior to getting there, I mean, when you read about it, <clears throat> I guess now, there were there were some logical reasons on why it was chosen. I, well, logical might be the wrong word. I, I understand why it was done. I, I, I mean... Now, are you talking about uh, from a strategic standpoint? No. Yeah, from a strategic of... of Objective, you know, right. working with the populace and being on the main route in the region, right? I mean, the only thing I can see from a strategic standpoint, and enlighten me, please. 
you know, you look at it where they were. And again, this thing being on the border of, uh, you know, right on the border of Pakistan, or at least Camdesh is, uh, yep. it, was there a sense of, we didn't want bad guys going in. We didn't want bad guys going out. I understand the, the counterinsurgency aspect of, you know, winning over the, the, the population hearts and minds. But again, you know, the idea that um, there would be anything originating in this area as far as terrorist activity seems almost foreign to me because there, there's there's nothing there to gain. Like, it's it's not a, a point of land. Was it a point of land, I should say, that was so critical that needed to be held? Yeah, I don't think so, right? I mean, I think a lot of the coin strategy was spilling into other areas because that was that was the thought you know, that was permeating through the army at the time. Right. So, um, it was maybe spilling into places that wasn't as necessary to do that. Yeah, that's it wasn't I mean. a large population area. It, it probably wasn't the, the full on best strategy to be taking. Um, now, I mean, there was some infiltration opportunities and stuff like that where you could be doing that, but if that was the primary goal, you'd been better off looking at using Fritchie as, as a more, which was the OP, right. Um, OP Fritchie was maybe, you know, 1,800 feet above us, meters above us, and then, um, you know, a mile as the crow flies away. So not real far away, but uh, that was straight up the mountainside from us. But, you know, it, it, it probably lacked in a lot of those things, that, you know, in, in there. And then there were some political reasons why it stayed there as long as it did, particularly through the election in 09, right? I mean, when we got there, you know, it was generally thinking that we were going to be closing it sometime in the summer, right? I mean, there was there was thought of of getting rid of that outpost middle of '09, and um, it just didn't work out for some of the political reasons. And then, you know, leading up to the to the the national vote, I think in August of 2009, and then we ended up in a pretty significant engagement. Not not my unit, but they sent in. Um, an infantry, a couple of infantry companies, you know, 20 miles up the river from us uh, in Barge Matal. And that, that really changed the battle space in the second half of that summer and early fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I, I, I can't get over it again. I, 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 I've been to Iraq twice. Uh, I've been to certain parts of Afghanistan um, for, you know, a week at a time, a week or two at a time. I, I've just, you don't really get an understanding for what it's like. Um, and even doing these, looking at these pictures, I can only imagine standing at the bottom and looking up the side of those mountains and going, how the hell do we get out of here? And and I'll add one other thing. The advantage that the insurgents or the Afghans had is that they've been traversing those hills for about 2,000 years. You guys were there for six, nine months. Like, it's just an unfair, you know, a, a, a ability that they have because they live there. It's their backyard to know how to maneuver on those mountains better than we do. And, and, and that, you know, obviously is a critical strategy for that. They, they were a critical point that they can use as far as being on the offensive. Correct. Yeah. They absolutely knew how to maneuver more quickly than we did. Right. I mean, they just, they, they did. Um, part of that, I think is a travel lighter too. Right. I think, I think we take for granted sometimes, um, how much stuff we pack on soldiers and then what that does to the ability of that soldier to maneuver quickly and freely. Um, but yeah, they, they certainly possess the ability to maneuver more quickly in most cases than we did. And I mean, I think there's mitigating ways that we attempted and the, the units 
before us attempted to to try to stem that, right? You know, the way you use indirect fires and Mark 19s primarily, um, you know, you try to shape stuff with, you know, 240s and 50 cals. Like, like you can use certain kinds of fires to try to, to move them in certain ways. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can get behind a rock and there were a lot of them, you know, it, it, it takes a lot to blow somebody up. Right. Okay. So when do you get to Cobb Keating? Got to Cobb Keating. Uh, I got there right towards the tail end of May in 2019, okay. 2009. Okay. When you say you got there, did the unit get there ahead of you? Uh, no, I was one of the leading edge of, uh, of our troop that got to Keating. We got there over the, the course of about a week, maybe a week and a half. Okay. Um, at the, the end of May, beginning of June, uh, 2009, somewhere in there. When you get there on ground, um, and you're starting to, you know, dig in, um, and figure out sort of how, you know, things are laid out, obviously, again, as you mentioned, your platoon was at Cop Keating Company headquarters is somewhere else. You had OP, you know, observation posts for the civilians. Listen, OP Fritch. Where were you guys? Was your entire platoon with you? How was it set up? Yeah, you know, for the sake of the discussion point, uh, at, let's, let's go to the point where everybody's there after about a week when all the, the Chinooks have brought everybody in. But yeah, my platoon was um, so so. Red platoon was all at uh, Cop Keating, and white platoon was in its entirety at Cop Keating. Now, uh, for, for everybody there, so it's a, it's a cab troop. Um, so M towed 18, right? So pretty small number of each of those platoons uh, at the time because it was a Rista squadron. And so when we're talking, when I'm talking my platoon, we were plussed up when we left. So I think I left with 20 or 21 soldiers somewhere in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when you're rotating people in and out, you're, you're down around that 16 to 18 number on any given day. Uh, but anyway, you had, we had red and white platoon at uh, Cop Keating, and we had a, a section of the mortar platoon. So essentially four or five guys um, that were there, and then we had the headquarters element. So uh, Captain Porter was there, you know, a few comms people, armor, et cetera. One of the armor was back at, at Fob Bostic, but we had some support people, right, uh, and some maintenance folks, cook, et cetera. That's what was at Cobb Keating. And then there was like a detachment of Afghan National Army, you know, depending on the day, 20, call it 30 soldiers, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood, and then we had uh, to start with. It was it was a pair of of German uh, soldiers that were the primary trainers, and then they rotated out relatively quickly, and and then it was replaced by uh, a couple of Latvian gentlemen that were they were, they were pretty fun to work with. Um, and then up at OP Fritchie, it was um, Blue Platoon and the rest of the mortar detachment. So they had enough to run a couple guns up there, and then they obviously had a small amount of support, you know, a cook, mechanic, etc. All right. So oh, and I'd, I'd be remiss to mention, we also had the physician's assistant. So we had the squadron PA, Doc Cordova, um, or Captain Cordova. He was also at Cop Keating. Okay. And so what are we talking about? 50, 50 plus soldiers? Yeah, 50 to 60. Okay. Uh, when you first get there and you're starting to assess things, from a security standpoint, did you make any major changes? Did, did, did you reposition 50 cows or re-fortify you know, exposition for whatever reason. I'm just curious kind of what you're looking at um, just for setting up the context to lead up to the battle. 
Yeah, we moved some gun positions around. Um, a lot of they were some were more on Humvees, some were more static positions, but primarily um, most of the sectors of fire, oddly enough, would fire over the top of the cop, right? So the 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 terrain was so steep in some areas that if if you put it say on the outside or the edge of the perimeter as a weapon system looking outward, you wouldn't have the range upward. You'd just be shooting over the top, right? Got it. So we, we would have interlocking sectors of fire um, on the opposite side. So, you know, like the, the weapon system, say it's a 50 cal that's protecting the north face might actually be on the south, very south side of the cop. And then you'd fire over the top of the cop in order to have a better angle of attack, if that makes sense. It does. I, I just wonder when you brief that to everybody, where they're like, ALT, are you sure you want to do that? Well, I mean, some of it was already there when we got there. We just okay. maneuvered some stuff around uh, based on, you know, kind of just just changes of how everybody does things a little bit different. But, um, yeah, I think <laughs> never got pushed back on any of those things because generally speaking, some of the the answers were obvious. Right. I mean, right. it didn't matter who you were. Like you're going, yeah, it's not ideal, but I mean, what else what, are we going to do? Right. right? You got better, if someone had a better idea, we'd take it. Right. So, <laughs> I mean, um, we're only looking at the best of bad decisions here. Yeah. So, so we would move, we moved some stuff around. And I mean, there was obviously also uh, one of the weapon systems on our first day there got one of the, the Humvees got destroyed pretty good by a B10 round. And actually, we were ripping with the unit. And, and so the first day there, a soldier got, um, he was slated to leave like that night and he got hurt pretty bad, but, uh, fortunately he didn't turn out all right. But, um, so we did have to maneuver some stuff around just based on some attrition and some things like that. But, uh, we did some of that. We moved some HESCO stuff. Um, you know, there was a little bit of that. We, we did a lot of stuff with concertina wire. Um, and then, you know, looking back on it, there's some stuff we definitely could have done differently and better. I, I mean, in theory, I don't know how we would have actually executed some of it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, but but some of the stuff I, you know, we we probably could have made better decisions. Uh, right. You know, once you look at some of the after action report stuff, you uh, yeah, we could have done that. I mean, now where we would have found that much dirt for that many Hesco beers, I don't know. And <laughs> and I guess I don't, you know, you should have filled them with rocks. They were easy to get off the mountain, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So I mean, some of it you know, makes sense and it doesn't make sense. Um, there's always, you, you always kind of wish you do some things differently, but sure, uh, absolutely. it's not, not really the world we live in, I guess. Mm-hmm. This was um, your first deployment. How many of the guys that were with you had had deployment experience already? <sighs> Most of them. Okay. I mean, um, I would say certainly all of Bellamy, <laughs> for the most part, all of the leadership except for the platoon leaders had, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, all the section sergeants, all the platoon sergeants, um, probably, you know, so anybody who was an E4 and above for the most part had had, had a tour already because it was a quick turn from, from Iraq. And then the guys we got from other units primarily had, had just hit their, their year of time of dwell and, and were coming back in. So, um, you know, Ben, Jordan and I, Rob, I, I would say outside of kind of the, the E2s and, um, and the lieutenants, most of them have been on a tour before. 
Wow. Uh, or to be a lieutenant, right? Don't you love what they do with us back in yeah. yeah. 20, 20, 21, 22 right. year old kids? Um, and you wonder why we get made fun of. All right. Uh, never mind. <laughs> that said, so you get there in May. Uh, op tempo, day to day life. Um, what are you doing? How many patrols are you going on? I mean, kind of just draw, set the scene for me. Yeah. So I referenced the size of, of the platoon, right? So mm-hmm. we essentially broke it into rotating schedules where one platoon did, did essentially uh, cop defense, right? So you're, you're manning all the, the weapon systems 24 hours a day, rotating people in and out, et cetera. And then the other platoon would do essentially patrolling. Um, and we would do at least two patrols each day. Um, and now I wouldn't say those were <laughs> – were great patrols um, from a populist interaction or any kind of making it better. It was it was mostly a different form of force protection, right? Right. So make your presence known, make it known where you're going, what you're doing. We did some ambush missions and a few different things like that with limited success, but um, but it was primarily at least two patrols a day to get out and project some level of force into the area. I mean, on most days you're probably only patrolling, you know, if you did a section section up, right? So maybe you're doing eight guys, nine guys out on patrol, plus a contingent of ANA, something like that. Um, and I would say rarely would we make contact when we were on patrol. Right. Well, okay, so let me ask you this then. Because if we talked about, you know, um, if if we talked about the whole idea of, you know, counterinsurgency and hearts and minds and everything else. And the strategic point of being there, if the patrols are limited and you're not going to meet with the populace and, and get their help and enlist their help, and you are not blocking enemy passageways on a daily basis, then I'd ask, what the hell are you doing there? Well, I think I think that's a legitimate question. And I think that's why leadership generally knew that cop Keating was in the process of being closed, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because they were looking at the size of the force they were putting there. And I mean, Colonel Brown and <clears throat> leaders above him, you know, they're smart enough to understand that if you have 50 people, you can only project X amount of power out there, right? I mean, they, they do that. And so there was some limited engagement and and so I think, but that was known. And so I think that's why Keating and Lowell were on the list to close down earlier in 09. Um, and so it looked like we were going to be closing based on, on everything you're talking about there, that Cop Keating no longer met the strategic mission of why it had been put there. Um, it looked like we were going to be closing that, you know, close to the, to the August time frame. Um, and then, you know, based on some, some political items with the, the election that month, they, they made the decision to hold it and then project an even larger force up into the Barge-Mittal region. See, that, that makes uh, – God, I, I hear that and I cringe because going someplace to leave is a dangerous strategy. That, that, my, my second deployment to Iraq was the closeout of 2011. And I'm there the whole time, and I'm sitting here thinking, we came here to leave – and everyone knows we're leaving. Just get the fuck up and go. Like, I understand you have to, you know, sort of retrograde operations slowly. But at the end of the day, 
if they know you're leaving and the longer you stay there, they realize that you are a softer and softer target along the way. And again, I'm not assuming that the Afghan populace knew you guys were leaving, but I would have that sort of fear. Like, what are we waiting on to leave? Pack the stuff up and let's move. You know, did you get a sense of that? Like, is, the longer you stayed there, the more dangerous it was going to get for you? Um, I, I don't think I thought about it like that. You know, I didn't really notice the significant difference until after they had, you know, <clears throat> did the, the movement out of Barsh Mittal. So, right, they put in two or three companies up there. They were there for a month. And then that was, you know, August, September. Um, and during that time frame, it really calmed down for us, right? And I, I guess there was a part of me that didn't really think that, hey, the enemy is probably consolidating, <laughs> you know, 20 miles from here. Uh, and then when they left, there was all these fighters like we, we got, we got to go do something now. Right. Uh, Cause they had harnessed a lot of effort up in that, that region. When we sent, you know, that force up there, it, it, it took a lot of the other kinetic um, work that had been going on in the region, whether at Lowell or Keating, and it moved it to that location. Okay. Makes sense. Um, okay. So as you get there on ground, I mean, uh, how often are you guys being, I know you're doing patrols, but how often are you being engaged on the base itself? How, how often are you being shot at, mortared upon, that sort of scenario? Uh, you know, uh, there'd be times it was daily. You know, I think, you know, if you're average, there was some sort of enemy contact probably five times a week. Okay. That's a lot. You know, so it, it was quite a bit. I mean, it was, it was frequent, right? It was very frequent. Any sort of casualties prior to October 3rd? Yeah, I mean, um, Sergeant Jacobs um, got, you know, he got a big chunk of his face from from that B-10. That was pretty pretty bad. Um, we had a couple other Afghan people get hurt from B-10. We got lucky a few different times, but uh, but relatively minor outside of Sergeant Jacobs. Okay. Um, I, I do ask, I have to retreat a little bit. Um, when you talk about resupply there, um, how tough was it to continue to get life support to you guys? Because again, I mean, there's no power there. You know, you're, you're not running off uh, anything other than generators, if, if that at all. Um, so the, the sort of ability to be resupplied uh, and get life support and food and everything else, what was that like? It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, because... Uh, Everything had to be Chinooked in, um, you know, slung in, and <clears throat> fuel and ammo always had to come, you know, always came first, uh, as it should, right? So, you know, and you had to have, it was high enough that it had to be Apache escorted, right? You couldn't use coyotes. So, obviously, limited number of resources. They flew there, generally speaking, once a month based on the alum. Um because it needed to be, you know, dark enough where they felt comfortable coming in and for legitimate reasons, right? I mean, those choppers would get shot at a lot. So um, for legitimate reasons, they were doing that. And so it was a pain. I mean, and, you know, you might get, let, let's say it was a good, a good resupply and you got three terms that night. So you might get where they bring a load out, they go back, they bring a load out, they, they come back, right? Three turns or two turns even. You know, so now you're trying to 
you're trying to haul that crap off of this rocky LZ over a bridge with a trashy bobcat and get it in, you know, secured in the middle of the night. It was, it was an adventure, man. I mean, some of it was pretty freaking comedic. Um, when you look back on it, right? I mean, there'd be times fuel blizzards would get dropped in the river, you know? I mean, just bizarre crap would happen. Um, and, I mean, anytime you were going to use the HLD, you had to go secure it by force, right? So, I mean, obviously we had Overwatch on it all the time, um, both with with a, a weapon system as well as some camera and, and stuff like that. Um, but you had to go secure it by force. So you had to send a section out, to the east side of the river and, and kind of push out into these local things so that you didn't get some random person that would just show up and, and be in the perimeter when that, that Chinook or Blackhawk would touch down. So um, it was a pain. Um, you kind of got used to it, but it was a pain. Yeah, and, and I guess um, as far as the helicopters, uh, give me some sort of background. Yeah. So they're flying into this valley, right? I mean, they're basically, they have to get up high enough to get over the mountain, then come back down in the valley or find a space where they can, you know, fly between two mountains, correct? And um, part of the danger is, I guess, that uh, the enemy literally could sit at helicopter level, right? And shoot straight across because of the way the post was in the mountaintop, right? I mean, that's what made it so dangerous. It's not like, it's different when you're shooting up at something that's moving, but when something is moving across your, your line of sight in a straight line, it's a much easier shot. Like, is that fair to say about as far as what the danger was for the resupply? Yeah, I think that is fair to say. So they would come over the top most of the time. So it was actually, it was like a roller coaster, right? So they'd come way up over the top and then they'd do a real steep dive down into the location as much as you can if you're, you're, you're towing, you know, a couple of, you know, a, a couple of fuel bullets or a couple of slings underneath you. But if they weren't carrying sling, they were pretty aggressive in how they would come down on it. But yeah, you're you're accurate with that because if you just come in slow up that valley, that that's not real great for them. No, yeah, I, I, I probably probably speed and surprise need to be more than anything going in. Okay, um, so all things considered, the tempo is pretty consistent. You guys stay pretty healthy and and pretty you know intact along the way. Weeks leading up to let's you know through September, um, is any you said things were starting to quiet down. Did, did you did it seem eerie to you that they were quieting down? No, I mean so. You know it was real hot right around the election. There was a lot of stuff going on then, and then towards the tail end of August, early September, it it seemed to ease off a bit. Like hey, you know it just it just did, and that was right around the time that. Uh, Stoney, you know, Captain Forrest had kind of started to take command. And um, generally speaking, we were we were made aware that we were going to be closing the cop. We were just bidding on final timelines, right? So, you know, by September, we're starting to talk about that conversation and say, hey, what's this going to look like when we do get the word? Over how much time is it going to happen? What are we taking versus what are we destroying in place? Um, and all those types of things. So it was kind of one of those things where you knew change was coming. Um, and so I, I guess I didn't necessarily think about it maybe in that, that, that way. There was a lot of other stuff we were focusing attention on. Yeah. And, and again, uh, I only ask because, you know, my experience as far as, uh, you know, driving through Baghdad, you know, even though we weren't supposed to take the same route all the time, we did. We just went at different times and used different methods. But, you know, whenever something on a road that wasn't, you know, if it seemed too easy, 
I'd make a mental note like this trip was too easy, like and the date and just sort of start to catalog these things um, because I felt like that the minute things started to look like it was going to settle down was the moment that things were going to, you know, catch you by surprise, so to speak. And so uh, when you said things had quieted down as they leading up to the beginning of October, uh, you know, I was just curious if there was a sense, you know, if you, I don't know if you had sort of that sixth sense or that spider sense and that, you know, something bad may be coming up. No, I might have just been too dumb, though, too, you know, I'll leave it at that. I mean, so I, I didn't have that sense that there was something bizarre going on or, you know, I thought it was just a, a valley in the sense that things would would go up and down, you know, um, and kind of on that. And then I will say we did start seeing early October, you know, our last day of September, October 1st, we started seeing an increase in border fire, which was super concerning at the time. And that was kind of known that that was a concern that we all had, right? When, when they started actually hitting it routinely, um, you know, that's just not, not good. And it was not that, that was a real concern once they'd figured out the, the range and everything like that. And they were, they were getting pretty accurate with some of their indirect fire. Yeah. Um, and again, the more you stay static, it goes back to that whole theory, the easier of a target you become. All right. Um, you go to bed on the night of October 2nd. Seems like a normal night. See you in the morning, guys, kind of deal. Yeah, I mean, at that point in time, we'd had, you know, obviously starting to do a lot of leave and, you know, guys rotating in and out. So actually, my platoon sergeant was, you know, back in Colorado on leave. And so I pulled a, like a sergeant of the guard duty because we were on force pro. Red platoon was on force pro at the time. Um, so I pulled a sergeant of the guard duty to like, I don't know, midnight or 10 o'clock or something like that. And then I, I went and actually exercised for a while. We had kind of a trashy gym um, up above the chow hall or over by, you know, above one of the buildings. And so I exercised for a little while and then, yeah, I went to bed um, and essentially <clears throat> you know, expected it to be like a normal day. You know, I think Sony was due to be back either the third or the fourth. And he'd given me a checklist of items that, that he wanted done while he was away. So I wanted to make sure I got all that crap done before uh, the new CEO came back. In the early morning hours of October 3rd. And by the way, um, for those who haven't sort of put the, the cosmos and the universe together, Coincidentally, October 3rd is the same date as Black Hawk Down in 1993, uh, which is sort of just, you know, unique and weird that it happened to you guys on the exact same day. But uh, you wake up on October 3rd to mortar fire, correct? Yeah, you know, so about six, you know, a couple minutes before that, um, kind of got a lot of rustling going on. Stanley had come up and said, hey, we got, you know, hey, start waking additional people up um said hey we got some some stuff going on some black communication coming in and since i was kind of running it but okay so i started getting up and by the time that i even had my boots on is when it, it kicked off in the sense that yeah there's there's mortars and there's, there's just shit blowing up right i mean just high volume of fire unlike anything you had seen before correct <sighs> yes i mean there had been times where you know there would be an initiation of a high volume of direct, indirect fire, maybe an RPG, B-10, by various weapon systems from the enemy. Um, and so the first minute or two, I probably didn't think that much 
about it, right? It was up. It was a lot. And I heard our outgoing, right? So like, not necessarily mortars right away, but we hadn't called for fire yet. So that didn't, that didn't concern me, right? But it's like, hey, I hear 50 cal going and I hear Mark 19 exploding. So, hey, we're shooting back. Got it. Cool. And so I start, you know, I get to the cop or the, the talk, sorry, you know, I'm the cop. And, and at that point in time, maybe a couple more minutes um, in, you're like, wow, this is definitely, this is definitely different, right? The, the volume intensified. Um, you're not just hearing things, you're feeling it, right? I mean, it, it very much um, was was a lot of rounds and everything was getting hit. And then you start you start piecing together the, the, the radio calls plus you're piecing together the stuff guys are yelling in through the door, right? You know, because a, a lot of the communication, some happens on the radio, but a lot of the communication is still straight up yelling, right? I mean, it, it still is, or at least it was. And so you're, you're piecing those together. You go, man, this is this is definitely going to be different, or this is definitely not what we'd normally expect. So as this thing kicks off, and when you start to realize things are going to get different, uh, take me through sort of the thoughts in your mind. Do you remember any commands you were given to guys? Can you sort of walk me through the initial steps of, of what you were going through and what you were doing? Yeah, initial steps were very similar to what it always was, right? Which is, hey, first set the sit reps come out, direct fire going, and then let's give targets to the mortar pit, right? Hey, this is where it's coming from. At least start getting outgoing rounds from the mortar pit, right? But the indirect fire were, were really probably some of our most key assets as far as being able to effectively shape the battlefield. And so... Those were pretty standard right away. Then it's the, hey, send a sit rep to squadron that says, we got this going on, request, you know, a, you know, assets, right? It doesn't even matter. The first request is like send air, right? Whether it's fixed rain or whether it's Apache, you know, send me something um, because you're a long ways away. So you're, you're usually, shit, even fixed rain would usually take 40 to 45 minutes, right? Generally speaking. Um, and you might wait an hour for, for rotary wing, if that's what you specifically needed, depending on where they were in sector. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so those were pretty standard ones. And then it's, Hey, ammo, right. Hey, where, where are we on those things? And that, that stuff starts developing after a few minutes. That's not immediate, but it's, Hey, what, what are we moving to? What gun position? Who's at what gun position? where do we need to move other people to? Cause you had a few other people you could maneuver around to, to ancillary gun positions and an additional two forties primarily that we had in different spots. You say, Hey, go put this two forty up or uh, go put this, uh, this guy here and, and start moving people around. So um, started making those adjustments. When is the first time you hear about a casualty? Like, Three minutes in, I don't know. It was right away. Essentially, um, maybe the initial call up to the mortar pit to say, "Hey, we're going to do this," and literally like a minute after that, you know, breeding calls back that that Thompson's dead <clears throat> or he's been shot. You know, I don't know the specific words, but it wasn't it wasn't good detail. Um, so, so like almost immediately was okay. the first one um, because that was. <clears throat> Mortar pit's obviously pretty exposed, 
because you got to go stand there and drop rounds. He, he was going to a machine gun so that the rest of the team could hit the mortar. But uh, it, it was fast. Okay. So as the first minutes of this thing um, are going off, one, I, I assume they, they seem like hours. You know, it's always hard to get a grasp of time. Um, but do you do you get a sense that you're starting to win back any of the, the advantage at this point early on? Or do you start to feel like things are not swinging in the direction? You know, like you said, guys are shooting back and you're starting to, re, you know, put, put uh, rounds on the enemy. But do you feel like you're starting to sort of sway momentum in your direction? No. I, I think what was different is the first... Time is very malleable in that situation. Even when I look back on it now, I sometimes struggle with something that for me might have felt like one minute, but was actually 20 mm-hmm. um, or vice versa, right? I really struggle with that still, even a, a decade removed. Um, and I don't know if other people do or not, or if that's just the way my mind works. Um, not that that matters. I'm, I'm rambling in that, that aspect. But um, I would say early on, and so I won't time bound it, but I'll, I'll activity bound it. Early on, I felt like we were getting, I mean, we were getting punched in the mouth, right? Like we didn't, we were shooting, but it, it didn't help. And we couldn't, I couldn't get the mortar. We couldn't get the mortars to be able to do what we needed to do just because they were getting hammered so bad. And then guys, you know, Kirk uh, gets gets shot and then screws up and, and so we're just accumulating people hurt, you know, wounded or, or dead. And so you're going, man, you just we were getting whipped and um, we're trying to maneuver people around. So Sergeant Romache is moving people around and Sergeant Hill's trying to move people around. And it's just we were trying things. Um, like you do, right? You iterate quickly in those situations, right? You go from battle drill to battle drill to battle drill, and, and you keep going. You don't get to. I was quite, you don't get to pick your ball up and go home, right? Like, sure, it's not an option. So you're you're you, you don't just get to sit there. And so making rapid movement decisions, say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna adjust here. I want you to take these three guys there, and 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 Ro, you need to go here and go do this. And we would go through those things. And none of it seemed to work. Um, and so, no, I think early on, you, it felt like we were getting pummeled. Um, there were, and then there were a couple of things that started to happen, right? I mean, I think after we tried to maneuver one of our ancillary trucks to support LRAS 2, and that failed miserably, um, not, not because soldiers didn't try, it just it didn't work. Um, and so that, that, that's not a, anything other than the fact that it just didn't work. But we, we tried that, and then we, we got cut off from LRAS2. Um, and so, you know, then there, was this, there was this weird lull where you're like, okay, you know, we're, we're maneuvering here, we're doing this. And then we came up with this plan um, to kind of use some some indirect fire from Fritchie and Fritchie was going to use Bostic and that worked a little bit for us to get some fire down around Keating, which was helpful. But I would say the, the biggest thing is when 
it, there was a galvanizing moment when, you know, at whatever time frame it was, when essentially you, you're getting the report that the enemy is literally on the cop with you, right? When you get that report, then I was like, oh, man, okay. And so then that kind of changed the momentum of what we were doing. And then once we changed what we were doing and how we were going to go systematically move some stuff around, um, I would say that's when I felt like we were, we actually kind of had, had started to, to win again. Right. Um, a couple of questions here. One, you talk about OP Fritch. Now, they were attacked nearly simultaneously that you guys were. You, you weren't aware of this, obviously. When did, when did you become aware that they could not give you guys fire support because they had troops in contact there as well? Uh, we knew that right away. So okay, you did. Not right away. It's been a couple minutes because I think a handful of minutes in, I had called up to ask Jordan for his indirect, uh, his mortars right away. And he's like, no, I, you know, we're using them. <laughs> um, and he gave me the, the, the sit rep that says, he said, this is what's going on out there. And so it was one of those things where he knew what was happening down in Keene that it was bad. And I knew what was happening up at Fritchie and it was bad. And I mean, OP Fritchie had a, a tough go of it. I mean, they, they got after it quite a bit too. It doesn't get quite as much, for the reason, doesn't get quite as much discussion, but sure. they, they had to, they had to fight their faces off too. Right. So, um, so it was aware of it, and then they were able to just based on the terrain. I think they were able to get they were able to get a little bit more freedom of maneuver more quickly um, because they could push the you know they had the ability to, to fire down, and the enemy had to fight up at them. They're not quite as much ability for for them to do the things that they wanted to do that they can at down when you're you're fighting above a heating. Right. When was the first air support? When does it arrive? When does the first bomb from air hit ground? Do you remember? You know, it was probably, you know, I think it was around an hour-ish. Okay. You know, there's different reports of the exact time and the timestamps, but, you know, somewhere in that range um, is when and it, it, the, the first air support comes in. Okay, now, but um, this is also simultaneously about an hour into this thing, maybe 50 minutes in, is when you get the first reports that they're inside the wire, correct? Yeah, they were very close. So, actually, and, and when the first Apache started checking on station... It was shortly after that, and I was talking to the the pilot, and I, you know I gave him the cigarette, but hey, we got we got people on the cop too, and he was well, you got it. I said, you take care of you know go hit these targets of what we want you to do outside. I'll take care of on it. I need you to help push these guys back so we can get some space, right? I mean that was part of the plan. Now, um, and so they they weren't able to stay on station a long time because of. The, the fire they took was pretty impressive, but I, I, they they killed like a platoon, you know, a platoon plus of of fighters when they came in, right? They were like, hey, we got, you know, 40 or 50 guys on the road right now. Are these yours or are they somehow? And then they hammered them on the way in and they were all coming for it. So I think wow. that was extremely helpful. <laughs> I get chills um, just hearing you say that, bro. <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, they, that was, that was big time on that one. Um, when they arrived, it was, it was huge. And I, I think that changes too, right? Once you put, once you can kind of turn it into more, you add that additional dimension, um, not just the firepower, but the dimension that the enemy has to think about when you're, you're fighting, um, it makes them think twice and, and it changes some of their attitude as well. So, uh, in combination of when, when we started having Apaches come in and then when fixed wing came in, you know, A-10s were hammered. We did a lot of gun runs and stuff like that. Um, those things. And then you put together 
what <clears throat> Sergeant Rowe and those soldiers were doing when we were saying, hey, we're going to go take take the ammo point, take the ECP, take the next thing, et cetera, and very systematically making decisions of what the next specific thing is. That's really when you're like, man, we got a lot of work to do, but, you know, eventually we're going to win this. All right. So the, you mentioned before that the guys getting inside the wire was sort of the seminal turning point for you. Um, how do you change, um, you know, sort of your mentality? Uh, how do you execute what you what needs to happen, knowing that, you know, uh, I've now got the bad guys sitting in my backyard? One, there was probably a couple of seconds where Case and I looked at ourselves and we're like, is this really happening, right? Like, I think, there, you know, I'll be honest with it. There was definitely a moment like, is, is this shit really, like, is this for real? Like, this isn't supposed to happen, right? I mean, it, it, it does and it can, and everybody knows that. But like, you're like, what the fuck, right? Um, Do you think at any point so- I'm going to die today? You know, I, I don't think I did. I'm okay. sure. And I don't think, you know, I think that's a tough question. I didn't go, man, I'm probably not going to make it today. I think what I I was distraught about or what I was fighting through was definitely like, <clears throat> this is different. This is not 100% the way I thought things were going to go, right? Like, it's just, I, I, and I, I personally didn't think that way. Um in my mind, I guess I'd always just assumed we win, right? Like there was never a part of me that ever thought, of, you know what I mean? We don't tell well, stories. That's about right. Me. Remember, history is written by the winners, right? So, I mean, yeah. every battle that we, we, we recount throughout history, and, and specifically when you do this in the Army with military history, for those civilians listening, we don't talk much about the ones we lost. Like, <laughs> That's that's not what they give us, you know. They, they, they tell us about Gettysburg because the North won the thing, right? I mean, it's not because they got their ass kicked. Yeah, we... We, you know, so you, you, I just never expected to be in a situation where I where you contemplate losing, right? We don't, we just don't lose, right? That's not how it's supposed well, to and, go. And that's uh, why I ask you about the advantage because it's just like you know, that to me feels demoralizing, right? It's one thing to be in the shit, right? Because I think we all, to a certain extent, we go to combat, we expect that we're going to get in it. It's just, it's like you said. You don't expect if you don't expect to be down by twenty five points in the first quarter. You know what I'm saying? Like that. That's not the way the game is supposed to go for us. We may be trailing, but we're not getting our doors blown off early on. Like that's what it must have felt like. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. It was. It was de- definitely just a, yeah. You you felt different in the sense that you were getting you're getting beat up, right? And you're going to have all this stuff, right? I mean, you have all these different assets you're used to calling on and using and they don't always work the first time, right? Like we use sports analogies a lot, right? But you, you may dial up what you think is the perfect play and it doesn't work. Well, okay, we'll use the next one. But you, you don't expect a bunch of them not to work in a row, right? And that's, that's I think, what caught me off guard a little bit. Um, and, and fortunately, I, I like to, you know, I guess I will go back to the training piece. I feel like the things that my leaders did allowed – my team and I to be successful when it mattered, right? Guys had the stamina to go all day. Guys knew how to operate every single weapon system effectively, no matter what they thought they were trained on, they could get on anything and do it. Everybody knew how to identify targets and could tell where a mortar round needed to go. Um, 
Multiple people could talk to aircraft if they needed to. We had the ability to do all those different things. And, you know, uh, even me, you know, leading up to it, there was a lot of stuff I wasn't aware of, but I spent a lot of time when we were in country talking, you know, where they power down the asset to you. So maybe you're talking to the drone operator or you're talking directly to the aircraft and, and you're deconflicting, whether it be a fixed wing or a rotary wing, because all that stuff matters still, right? So you can't just pile all these aircraft on top of each other and then hope it goes right, right? There's a ton of coordination that's going on, like, hey, you can only have fixed wing on these, you know, north and south ways here, and they're going to be doing this, and then we're going to use rotary aircraft here, clear the drones out of this space, and then we're going to shoot mortars in this area because you don't want to shoot the wrong shit. Um, and so I, I look back on some of the training exercises we did and, and some of the experience that I was given, and I'm extremely grateful I got that because otherwise I don't know that I had the ability to navigate, you know, half a dozen radio nets at one time, right? I, I, it's, it's just bizarre. You know, you just kind of, you take some of that stuff for granted, but that shit matters. Absolutely. Yeah, no, 100%. So, um, do you remember some of the orders that you were giving to guys once they were inside the wire, how you were sort of realigning or repositioning guys to essentially, you know, uh, not get captured or killed right on the spot? Yeah, so it was a lot of mostly to to Hill Row. First Sergeant was there, but it was, hey, blue platoons, I need you guys to do this. You're going to put people facing this direction and that direction. And then, whoa, we need a team to go do this. And so then he would, you know, it was blue is going to hold and, and maneuver, you know, hold a certain area so that we make sure we have a space. And then red platoon is going to have, or, or I guess whatever, there's a mixture, but Romesha, your team is going to be the one that's going to be leading to go take back what we need to take back, right? To forcibly, right. you know, um, re, re, regain the, the territory we needed to if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of individual, you know, discussion and, and order that are given. We had a, you know, big map on the wall. It was essentially, hey, uh, you know, Hill, I need to go do these things. Stanley, you need to go do these things. Ro, you need to go do these things. You point it out on the map. And, and some then from then on, some of it was via radio, like we talked about. And then expectation is, <clears throat> you know, for a section starting like Sergeant Romachet, you know, if he sees something, he needs to be able to go do it. I, I have faith 100% that he's going to make the right tactical decision in most, most places. So there were a lot of decisions that I have no doubt he made as they were, you know, Hey, we're going to go through here and do this because rounds were coming from this particular spot. So I think that, that's one thing that separates some of, you know, you know, separates good ground units from bad ones is how much do we trust junior leaders to make decisions in yeah. real time without any permission. And um, I know my leaders, expected me to make right, you know, make good decisions and, and, and were comfortable with me making decisions. And I'd like to think that I did the same thing for, for my junior leaders. You know what I mean? Well, that is, I mean, listen, it's a theme that comes up a, a lot that we talk about here on the podcast. And, and it's something that I, uh, you know, as an officer throughout my career, I've said repeatedly, I refuse to babysit people and I refuse to let junior leaders babysit other junior people. Because that's not what makes this organization great. Like, you have to empower people below you to be able to make decisions uh, and, and get them practice at making decisions when it's not life or death. So when it is life or death, they've had the repetition, the practice to be able to react on their own and have faith in the decisions that they make as the right ones. 
Um, and, and some of that comes through failure, right? Some of that comes through through training, making decisions in training and learning that you made the wrong one. But to the point is, is that I, I would never want to create a unit where my subordinates are petrified of doing anything on their own. Because it, it just in, in simple terms, if you take me out, then nobody knows what the hell to do. I've always said, you know, I've, I told my company commanders, your job is to train lieutenants how to be a company commander. If you have to train them how to be a platoon leader, their previous leadership already failed them. And you're going to fail them. You have to train them for the next job that they're supposed to be in, not the one that they're already in. They should know that job already. And so if you're not training them to think that way and getting them acclimated to making those level of decisions, then you're always, they're always going to be behind the curve. And, and as you just spoke to, allowing those junior folks to be able to make decisions on their own may have saved their lives, if not the lives of other people, too. Yeah, I mean, it has to be, right? I mean, there's um, there's a reason we put people in those positions, and and my job as a lieutenant is to make sure they're prepared to do it. And so, you know, same thing. You know, Sergeant Lawrence was a section sergeant, but he was filling in for a platoon sergeant, right? So, you know, everybody's almost always doing some level, one level up as it is. Right. So. Um, there's nothing wrong with having that expectation. So, you know, let's just, you know, when, when they screw it up, which inevitably everybody makes mistakes doing certain things. Um, you know, I hate that term like teachable moment, but the whole thing is, you know, if you, you go through a session on it and you, you kind of walk away with that person says, yeah, I messed this up in this situation, but they don't feel scared to make a different kind of mistake again. I think, you know, it comes away with a learning opportunity or a, a good learning uh, from that opportunity. And so I think those are things we did really, really well. Um, and then, you know, I look at, you know, soldiers just going to, they keep going, right? I mean, no matter how bad it gets, they keep going. You know, some of it is because you don't really have an option. I get that, but it constantly amazes me at how great soldiers are at running to the gun and, and, and just getting after it, right? It's really impressive when you look at what they do and how they do it. Um, not a hundred percent, but they, they, you know, they generally speaking, I'm always, I, I look back and I was really, really happy with the way they responded to, to a tough situation. So you talked about monitoring, you know, multiple different radio nets at the same time. Um, at any point, do you see the enemy inside the wire with your own uh, eyes? I did. Um, I guess they weren't necessarily that close to me, but like when I went out and, and took a look at a couple different things, you knew they were where they were at and what was going on. I mean, there was never one that, you know, there wasn't an enemy combatant like 20 feet away from me that, you know, I, I, I pulled out my, you know, nine mil and got after or anything like that. Um, but I knew what was going on based on what were, what I was being told and where we were moving people at. But gotcha. personally, as an individual, I did not go and like engage one at like 20 feet or anything. No, and I wasn't asking for sort of that, you know, movie moment. I was just curious, you know, if, if you, yeah. you know, to the level of which they were inside. Like, do you, do you have an idea of how many guys are inside the wire? I mean, it must have been at least a platoon at one point in time based on the number of bodies we pulled off of it. Okay. I mean, that's a fair, fair way to describe it. Uh, so this happens about, you know, 45, 50 minutes in that you, that you have your first breach. You start to make these moves um, to, you know, thwart that. Um, how long does it take for you to sort of at least eliminate that threat of, of the enemy inside the wire? You know, I think 
like like we talked about, time is difficult. It, it was sure. a couple of hours, though. I think, you know, midday, I think we weren't necessarily worried about that anymore, um, at least on an initial way. We had generally gotten most of the cut back. We had some level of communication with, with stuff. We had most accountability. Um, midday, we got, you know, Mace back to the aid station. We got uh, – Hart was the only one we were still looking for. But generally speaking, we, we knew what was going on. We knew there was a QRF that was moving towards Frishy, you know, Frishy, and they were going to try to come down and, you know, reestablish some level of additional support. Um, by, by that midday portion, we were, were seeing pretty continuous number of fixed and, and rotary wing aircraft that we could be deploying continuously. And it was still very much a slugfest, right? I think that's, you know, the enemy did a good job where they didn't they didn't just pick up and go home either when things got tough for them because it did you know when we started pushing back harder um they they kept at it for a while and i mean if you talk to to stoney and a couple other people that come down that that mountain on that qrf it was it was an intense walk down that that side and there was a lot of dudes they walked past right i mean there was um you know, so so midday though is when you you kind of you knew the outcome. At least in my mind, I knew what the outcome was going to be. It was just a matter of whether it was going to it was going what cost it was going to come each time. At what point do you get a chance to uh, evaluate the number of casualties you've taken, the KIA and the wounded? Well, um, I mean, we knew. Like I know you said Specialist Thompson right off the bat, um, but obviously yeah, other I mean, guys are, or PFC Thompson. Right, generally sorry. speaking, the reporting was pretty good and knew it. I think the the unknown came when we lost communications to LRAS two, and so we had a hand, you know, four guys up there, five guys up there, and so then you're going, and then once we reestablished that communication and we got that sit rep, then it was okay, and we got. Mace, Larson, Carter back. So mid, you know, late morning time frame when you got that, you know, okay, I know where all them are in this. Hey, where is Sergeant Clark? Right. That that was the one that we were unsure about. Is like, hey, we need to, to to get accountability of him, right? That was probably the second half of the day, the biggest concern I had is we gotta find that soldier. Right. Regardless of the outcome of it, we need to find him. Um, and fortunately we did, right? You, you know, um, you know, uh, unfortunately didn't make it, but um, we did get accountability. So that was um, very, very important. Do you have a chance to even gather? I mean, again, you know, in reality, for those listening, the entire length of this thing was about 12 hours, you know, from from or 14 hours, somewhere in that range from zero six in the morning till easily seven, eight o'clock at night um, before you guys get everything really settled in. Um do you do you have a chance to gather yourself emotionally about any of this? Has the emotion of the and the gravity of the day hit you at any point? Uh, I don't think it did until you know the QRF came and we kind of walked. You have 100 accountability. The QRF's there. We're setting up additional defense, uh, you know, defensive positions, and then you're, you're kind of set. And then we're like, hey, we we got. Helicopters coming in. We're going to take people out. Mace goes out uh, back to the aid station. We send out a bunch of other wounded guys. Um, I think probably then you take some level of 
sob about it, but, um, you know, it was brief that night. I, I would say I, I probably struggled with it more <clears throat> in the days after we got back to Fob Bostic, like a week later, personally. Gotcha. Um, I, I'm curious as to uh, sort of your, your, in retrospect, hindsight, you know, do you get a chance to think about what you would have done different from a tactical standpoint? Or do you feel like you, you did the best you could with everything that was going on, the information you had at that time? You know, um, I've thought about that a lot. I yeah. think how can you not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm gonna one. You know, I I know there are things we could have done different that day, and leading up to that day, that maybe we I wish we could have. Right? I mean, I think we could have done stuff from a battle drill standpoint, maybe defensive positions, etc., that would have maybe mitigated some of it. At the end of the day, I don't know, and obviously never would be able to know that even if we took all of those mitigating actions, um, results might have been different. It would have changed anything. It's 100 percent speculation. I think um, I've been fortunate enough with the people around me to make sure that I don't go down a rabbit hole of what ifs, and mm -hmm. and so don't tend to. I don't tend to look at it that way. I guess I, I tend to look at it in the sense that given a situation soldiers do what soldiers do and you're always moving forward and so I, I i i choose to look at it that way whether that's right or wrong i probably do that more for my own sanity than anything else no and that's and that's fair um you know again i i don't I asked the question just because, you know, in a tactical standpoint, now obviously there's a lot of emotions that go into that because there were lives lost. So um, I, I certainly understand, you know, that portion of it. But, you know, I, I would tend to agree with you, you know, and battle unfolds in ways that is completely unpredictable. And I could tell you with 100% certainty that had you taken certain steps, another road could have, you know, another door could have opened up, so to speak, that would have led to X, Y, and Z issues that you might not have been prepared for. You know, I mean, th th this isn't like, you know, a sporting event where, hey, if I don't fumble, we win the football game, right? Like, it's not that cut and dry. Um, if you hold the advantage in this position, well, the enemy does this because the enemy always has a say. They They always have a role in this that we can't account for ever. We can sort of practice and think and, and sort of suppose what they're going to do, but we never know exactly how things are going to play out one way or another. Um, but it's, it's, I think there's value in asking the question of, you know, what would you change or, or how would you execute it differently? Um, because I think as leaders, we're all compelled to ask ourselves that question. Yeah, there's no doubt we should, and we should learn from those things so that we can be better. I mean, um, the enemy does have a significant say in a situation like that, particularly when they, you know, they're four times in numbers. Yeah. Um, and so they absolutely, in some ways, dictated what was going to happen, right? And I mean, if you, you think about everything we, we talk about in, in ground war, you, you want the freedom of maneuver. You want fighter superiority. You need the ability to shoot, move, and communicate. If you can't do those three things effectively – you will not win, right? Like, or it's unlikely you will win. And so there was a time when we didn't have those things. 
and we had to take that initiative back. And I think what I focus on, um, and like I said, <clears throat> this is looking back on it, is very much what we did, what that team did in order to regain that initiative so that we're, you know, we're able to, to salvage the mission the way that they did, right? And, and we walk away from, although it'd be a costly engagement, still, a, you know, <clears throat> an engagement that we got to, to dictate the exit on. Um, there are certainly, and I mean, after action reviews and, and investigations, et cetera, there are many things we could, we could have done differently. And I'll leave it to, to those groups as far as what that was. Um, but yeah, you, you always wish certain things might've gone a little bit better. Um, but I, I generally try to look at it a little differently. Sure. Uh, and again, just for, you know, uh, my own two cents, you know, I mean, Andrew, uh, the, the, the amount of lives you saved in this thing are more than the ones you lost. And, and that's, I don't think that's debatable. Um, and, and I'm not saying that by any means to that we shouldn't honor those who, who gave their life that day, but just know your actions saved a lot more than, than what the enemy took from us. Um, so, you know, again, I, I've, I've done my homework on this and I've studied, and if it's any, you know, consolation, just from an objective outsider on uh, somebody who's been through a, a, a combat or two, uh, you know, your, your, your work saved a lot more lives and your actions saved a lot more lives um, than what we lost. So that's just from me to you, brother. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, let me ask you about uh, Sergeant Romache and, and Specialist Carter. Uh, for those listening, those who were awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions on that day, were you aware of anything that they were doing? Yeah, I mean... Uh... A lot of the stuff up in LRAS2 where Carter was at was after the fact because we were cut off in communication for a while. So, okay. I mean, I didn't know a lot about that in real time. Um, obviously, everything from the time we got the radio back to them and they were communicating or Sergeant Larson was communicating what was happening up there and really the development of the plan as far as how we we're going to get Mace back and et cetera and stuff like that. So, yes, in that 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 part I did. Prior to that, no, that's, that's mostly, you know, conversations after the fact. Um, with Ro, yeah, because I mean, we were talking about every step of the way and, and kind of, hey, this is what's going on here or there. Now, did I know every footstep he was taking? No, and frankly, don't care, right? In the moment, um, mm -hmm. I expect him to go do those things. So, um, but yeah, we knew the plan of what was supposed to happen. Um, I think sometimes we take for granted how hard those things are to go and do. But yeah, I think I'm pretty familiar more with the, the stuff that Ro did. Um, and then the the things that were happening up at LRS two slightly more disconnected based on the lack of radio communication until we we were able to reestablish that contact. But um, great soldiering there. You know they did 100% of what we. You know I'm super proud of those guys and I'm super proud of all those soldiers. Right? I mean the the American public doesn't send us to fight; they send us to win. And so. Um, I like it when we can recognize soldiers for <clears throat> a what we expect them to do and how they expect them to do it, uh, but b handling it extremely well and then after the fact handling it extremely as well. Um, so super proud of what those guys have accomplished. When the day is over, uh, and as you mentioned, you get a chance to you know uh, sort of decompress and everything, um, you know. Uh, 
you look at everything that you guys got through um, in those moments right afterwards, do you wonder how you survived? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I've thought about it. I mean, I don't really know all of it, right? I'm, I mean, some of it, I guess, is by the grace of God um, and and luck. But, um, yeah, I've thought about it. I don't, I don't really know why or how numbers get pulled, but, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't, I fully don't understand it. There, there were other engagements we were in while I was there that I, I walk away from like, I don't know what the hell just happened. Like how, how did that happen that way? Um, so yeah, I absolutely have thought about that. I mean, and I say this all the time, like I have been in situations where I have seen soldiers do everything right and they don't come out of it. And I have been in situations where I see soldiers do everything wrong and they come out of it unscathed. And, and that is unfortunately just the nature of combat and the unpredictability of it. Um, it, it there is no accounting for it. Uh, it is literally second by second uh, that you sort of survive your way through that thing. And uh, like you said, I, I, through the grace of God, I don't know whose number gets called and why and, and when it happens. And um, I, I don't have a good explanation as to why I'm here in one piece, relatively physically okay, comparatively speaking to a lot of my brothers who aren't. Like, I don't have a good answer for that. And I never, I never no, will. And, exactly. And, and, and I don't, you know, because that's a, it's a, it's a tough one to answer. I don't, I don't think there is a good answer to it. I just think there's a, <clears throat> there is a, a level of the unknown in combat um, that we just cannot account for. Yeah. When you get back to Bostick and the weight of this thing finally hits you, what are your emotions? You know, it was tough. Um, you know, it was one of the things like, man, what do we do now? Right. It, it's, it's October. So you're still there another six months, seven months, something like that. Right. Like, you know, a bunch of the platoon is gone. You're going to have to get a bunch of new soldiers in all of, you know, a lot of our equipment's destroyed. It was like, what's the next step? And, that's where I thought, you know, I think Stoney was the right commander at the time. He did a really good job <clears throat> reintegrating a team and, and figuring out what our next pathway was. So it was, it was take a, a couple of days to, to just kind of figure it out and let everybody work through it the way they wanted to. And then a week later or so, you know, we started getting, getting some new guys and start training people up all of a sudden, you know, you're getting a new truck, you know, trucks are showing up and equipment's showing up and you're going back to work. Right. I mean, um, but you weren't going back to work at cop Keating. No, no. I we mean, destroyed cop Keating and we were back at five bottom. Right. Yeah. So but three days later, they destroy it. Um, when you found out that they were destroying it, did it bother you? Not the least. I mean, we knew that was going to happen right when we were pulling out. Yeah. But so I, I mean, not. when, when your guys, gave their lives there. It doesn't change for you. It didn't for me. Okay. Um, I guess I didn't necessarily look at the ground as an important thing personally, but, um, no, I, I guess I, I look at the people that inhabited it and, and we're, we're fighting for each other as opposed to the territory itself. But, um, no, I didn't have a problem with just blowing it up. Okay. Yeah. And again, I'm just, I, 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 Curious to see if anybody looked at it and said, you know, um, our guys were here. We own this land. We lived on it. And we died on it. And, you know, there's certain ownership in that, I think. You know, I, I, I just kind of speculating from my point of view, at least. 
Yeah, I think there can be. I absolutely, I, I don't disagree with that thought. But yeah, personally, I didn't, I, I, I didn't lose any sleep over that. How hard was it for you to go back to work? Uh, it was actually good. I was glad when we finally got to start getting after it again. You know, after <laughs> after several days of not having a routine of what I wanted to go and do and kind of getting, you know, soldiers getting antsy and I could tell they were going to start doing stupid shit um, <laughs> and getting into trouble on the fob and stuff like that. So I, I was happy when we got to start getting back to work. It wasn't easy, but I was glad we got to go do it. When was the memorial service for the eight guys? Like a week afterward, I think. How was that? How tough was it? It was tough. It was tough, but it was good. It was cathartic. Had some good speaking. Um, it was nice. It was enjoyable. It was not enjoyable in the sense that it was good to see us be able to take a, a, a decent amount of time and and talk about those men and what they did and how they lived their lives and and that type of stuff and, and really be able to grieve for them in, in a more traditional fashion. So it, it was good. Uh, a lot of tears, I assume. You know, everybody's different. I mean, I certainly did. Uh, other guys did. Some people don't. Um, you know, say everybody does it their own way. I mean, it was tough. But, uh, yeah, it was it was, it was very emotional for everyone, I would say, at least, you know, within the unit. But, it, yes. So this deployment for you ends how? What do you mean? Like, so, I mean, you know, you said you still weren't leaving until, you know, May. Oh, so, I mean, like, God. you know, like w what's going on? I mean, is it, is it back out uh, in a, another indefensible position, sort of, so to speak, no, or are no. you just stuck on the fob the whole time? We, yeah, we relocated the fob Bostic and um, there was, the, there was a route there. And so we, we took over an AO with a couple of villages that were, were angry and so we went and, and we spent the next six months patrolling in those and had a little bit of success and had some work on some HVTs. And um, it was still, you know, it was still a kinetic battlefield and actually had some, you know, some interesting situations pop up um, over the next next amount of time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was not over. And the spring of 2010 was... Uh, I mean, it was no joke for us there either. So unfortunately, I mean, that was a that part of Afghanistan, just like a lot of parts of Afghanistan in 2009, 2010. It, it wasn't it wasn't a friendly place. No. Um, do you ever get the feeling of like while you're going through this, what the hell are we doing? Like we've already lost ACOS. Why are we still here? Does that thought ever cross your mind? I think it crosses everybody's mind the last month of deployment. Um, <laughs> everybody I talked to, um, and we got stuck there a little while longer too, because there was this volcano that went off in like Iceland or Greenland or some crap, and it kept delaying aircraft across northern Europe because of the ash cloud. And so the unit that was replacing us couldn't get enough people there. So it doesn't matter, regardless. Uh, yes, that <laughs> you. you you're definitely going, why are we still here? What, like, what is the strategic value of what we're doing right now? I mean, particularly on some of the follow-on missions we had where the, the, it was just really tough, right? The, the infrastructure that was getting destroyed, it just, it was not, 
it was really counterproductive. You felt like on most days. I know you said that, you know, the second half of the deployment as well was tough. Did you lose anybody else? Fortunately, Apache was good. Yeah, fortunately, we didn't have any more soldiers killed. But, yeah, we had some guys get hurt. Um, I mean, and Harpalani got hurt like the last week. He ended up, ended up eventually losing his leg. But, yeah, we had some guys get hurt. But but fortunately, everybody did, did make it. All right. You're getting on the plane to leave Afghanistan. Any thoughts? Any any sort of uh, thank God I'm getting the hell out of here, or I hope I never see this place again kind of deal? Uh, you know, um, I don't I don't think it was thank God I'm getting out of here. You know, you as on it was on our way back to Manus or Manas or whatever that air air base is, and you know over there and um it was a flight over some mountains it was it was beautiful you you know you just reflect on how a, such a beautiful place can be so torn up you know what i mean but um i was excited to get home and see my wife so yeah i mean i was, I was excited to go home when do you start hearing about just awards um you know and i, I know the for, for sergeant romichet and, and specialist carter it's the medal of honor but i mean when is that conversation even had, or are you a part of it? Or, I mean, did, did, did you have to write the citation for any of these guys? I did. I, I wrote, okay. All the, all, all the citations that I wrote uh, for the soldiers that I put in for awards, I, I, I'd do a draft. And then Stoney did a lot of the, the heavy lifting because he's a wordsmith that I am not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, shortly thereafter, obviously, there was a lot of sworn statements, a lot of that, that type of stuff. Um, but we wrote the citations. I don't know, it was like within 30 or 45 days or something like that, maybe longer, I don't know. But it was it was by the end of the, of the year, and, and there was a lot of refinement, and it goes up for signatures and stuff like that. And, um, so, yeah, I was I, I wrote Sergeant Romance's award, but I, I had actually originally put him in for a Distinguished Service Cross, the award that I put down. Okay. Um, and he was actually upgraded at the DA level, right? So when it got got higher, they upgraded him to the, to the medal of honor. So, um, and there was rumors of that, you know, because his kept getting delayed and delayed. You're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Right. Cause, um, I was out of the army by the time he was even awarded that. Right. right? Yeah. But so, so I was out of the army. Um, but there was, there was starting to be rumors around 2011, like this is what's going on. And so, you know, we were just waiting to see what happened. Um, but yeah, no, it was, um, that was that was an interesting experience. So yeah, how, that was. Let me ask you, how do you arrive at that decision? Listen, I've I've written a hundred awards in my twenty plus years in the military, right? But I, I've never had to sit there and go, "This is worthy of a Medal of Honor," or "This is worthy of a Distinguished Service Cross, the second highest military award for valor." Like, how do you process that in your head and be like, "Okay, yes, um, we can justify this," because I, I think. You know, I, I've always said this about awards to people, you know, if everybody gets one, it's not special, <laughs> you know, like it, 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 I, I remember reading Stars and Stripes on my second deployment when they talked about there was a, a column in there about the number of bronze stars that were given out from, you know, in Iraq from 03 through 06 and then from 07 to like 11. And it was nearly triple on the second half. They were handing them out like candy. And, you know, and I'm sitting here going, yeah, see, if everybody's got one of these things, it doesn't mean anything. 
So you have to be very careful about when you you go down that road of saying this is worthy of something of that high of. Did you know from the jump that it was absolutely worthy of that? Was there any question in your mind? No, I I wasn't sure. And um, and I didn't really know how to navigate the space really well. Right. I mean, I was I was a lieutenant. Right. So I was just trying to figure it out. I I relied on other leaders to kind of help walk through that process a little bit. We kind of went that path and. Some of it, I'm sure, came from guidance on their level of this is what we think, and and maybe even above that. So I kind of, I kind of have my thoughts, um, and then you just kind of evaluate those things, and and so that's how I approached it. I think when I look back on it, um, this is less of, you know, our experience there. Um, if you look at the number, and not necessarily the bronze star example you did, because th- some of those are pretty ridiculous. Some of those examples, right? Right. Um, is is when you look at the number of valor awards in Iraq and Afghanistan compared to historical American conflicts, it conflicts it's way down, right? Um, and maybe that's the nature of the conflicts that we're in. That being said, we've been in these places for 15, 20 years at this point in time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's certainly actions that have happened. And so I think what, what Andrew's opinion here, when you look at the number of silver star and above, it's been way lower than it's historically been. And so I think it, it, rightly so to your point, we hold those awards really high. And so it's, it's one of those things where, it's okay to have the conversation with a broader group and say, you know, we, we have these really high expectations of soldiers, but this is still an incredible thing. Do we recognize this person? And so when, when the DOD started going back and, you know, Department of the Army started going back and look at these awards and evaluating them, I, I, um, I think they made the right decision on, on some of that stuff. But I was a novice, right? I mean, I, I relied on a lot of senior leaders to help me through that process because once you start getting into those higher level awards, the justification is really, really scrutinized. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was, I was happy that I had people around that could help me. Not that they'd been through them a lot, but they were, they were okay broadening conversations and, and talking with people to figure out to the best path forward, if that makes sense. Before we get to the actual, you know, uh, awards for uh, Roe and, and Ty, and then your specific award, you end up getting out in 2012. Why? Um, you know, mostly because I felt like I probably, if I stayed in, I love the army, so I want to caveat that. I love the army. I absolutely know that it was the best decision for me, and I'm super glad every single day that I, I went down that path. Um, I do also know that I don't think I would have been happy not ever really being, you know, around my wife that very, very much. And now I'm fortunate enough to have three kids. Like I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be gone all the time. To be frank, you know what I mean? Like sure. I, I didn't. I, I it wasn't wasn't something I think that when I was 50 years old, I would have been proud of what I did, but at the same time, I feel like I'd have been pretty disappointed maybe in some of the other things I gave up and I wasn't ready to do that. And so, um, that was kind of the, the reasoning is, um, I wanted to, 
to be around and I, I wanted to be a, a part of, of other people's lives. Yeah, I, I, I joke with people all the time. That's the great thing about the Garden of Reserves. You get to date the Army. You don't have to marry it. <laughs> you know, um, keep, keeps you in the fight, so to speak, for the most part. And uh, every now and then you get to take trips uh, places you didn't think you were going to go. But, uh, you know, again, yeah. uh, it, it, you get you get a lot of the benefits of being just a regular civilian. Uh, anyway, I digress. Yeah. And listen, I, I understand that. Do, do, do you think um, w- when you made that decision, was any of it about the guys you had lost? No, okay. it was it was a very personal decision between between my wife and I. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, um, when you decided to get out, when you told some of your guys that you were leaving, any sort of remember any of their reactions? Were they surprised, upset, disappointed? No, I mean, I think a lot of guys were getting out at that time too, sure, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wasn't the first one, and and by that point in time, 2012, most of the unit had ETS and kind of moved on. Or not ETS necessarily, but PCS or some had gotten out already. So, um, no, I don't think it was a big surprise. Um, but yeah, I think there was there was certainly you know, yeah, it was, I don't think big surprise. But some of the guys are still in, other guys, you know, not so much. But um, generally speaking, I don't think there's any judgment on anybody, regardless of the decisions they made. All right, so your particular award, before we get to, again, Ty and Roe, uh, you actually were originally awarded uh, the Silver Star, correct, in 2010. That is correct. And then it was upgraded to a Distinguished Service Cross. Now, well, let's start at the beginning. When you hear you're getting a Silver Star, what's your reaction? Uh, I told Stoney I didn't think he should do it, right? I I didn't think I earned it. I didn't think it was something I should get, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, was unnecessary. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was a little surprised. What did, what did your commander say to that when you told him? I mean, I don't think he agreed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, so, so that, so then when, when they came back and upgraded, I was, I was really surprised that, that, that caught me off guard. What was that getting that phone call like? weird because you get like a random phone call from a person at the Pentagon that says you're going to get a call from someone at two o'clock on Friday. And in my case, like they're going to, are you, are you available for a phone call at two o'clock on Friday? I was like, I guess it's a cell phone, right? I mean, it rings <laughs> and I answer it. So, okay. And it's like, well, can you tell me what this is about? And she's like, no, I can't. And I was like, Oh, okay. So it's like the <laughs> department of defense says, hi, this is so-and-so from the department of defense. Are you available for a phone call at two o'clock on Friday? That was generally what happened, yes. <laughs> Can you tell what it's about? No, I can't. Goodbye. All righty then. Yeah, yeah. That was it. And then I got a call from, uh, I, I, I can't remember, um, some some general. Um, I probably should remember the name. I don't. Um, and we had an awkward conversation for, for three or four minutes. And um, he asked if I had any questions. And I said, I said no. And there was awkward silence for a while. And uh, I mean, he was a very nice guy. It, just, it was awkward, right? I mean, and I didn't know what to say. Obviously, he didn't know a lot about what to say. And so it was kind of, you know, have a good Christmas and <clears throat> yeah. the phone. Uh, and then ultimately, the ceremony itself, uh, where you get the Distinguished Service Cross, uh, what was that like? Uh, you know, it was small. We did it at the University of Minnesota, so they let me choose the location. So that was. Um, that was good. It was, you know, only, you know, 
couple unit members, uh, you know, that all the unit members were invited, but a few came and, you know, some, some leaders um, that I hadn't seen in a while uh, that I served with. And um, it was good. You know, I think what I wanted out of it was, you know, my, my kids were born after I was out of the army. Sure. And so they see the stuff on the walls and stuff like that. And they don't really get it. They're still pretty little. Um, I think what I wanted out of it is, is, you know, when they had the ceremony, all, all three kids were there and, and my wife was there and that, that's what was important to me. So, um, but it was, it was nice to see a lot of people I hadn't necessarily seen in a while. And, um, it was pretty low key. It was good. They, they were, the army was really great about, you know, <laughs> they asked you a lot of questions about how you want this and how you want that. And they were really great about doing it the way that I requested as far as not inviting a lot of random people. I have no idea who they are and just trying to make it a thing. Um, Cause I said, I don't, I don't want it to be a thing. You know what I mean? Where, where somebody's on detail where they got to show up and sit in the audience. That's not what I'm looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was nice. It was very small uh, friends, family unit members. And uh, so that was, that was nice. And by the way, I'm jealous. Um, I'll tell you the same thing. I mean, you know, I've had my kids after all my deployments and while I'm still serving, you know, in the guard and everything, um, you know, and they know daddy's in the army, but they they don't really have a concept of what that means because they're only five years old. I have twin boys. And, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I, I, when, when you say that, you know, I'm, I'm, I smile for you because that moment, you know, so your kids understand a little bit better about what dad did. Um, and not just, you know, because it's heroic or anything like that, but just, you know, what that part of dad's life was like. Uh, I think that's a really cool moment for you. Yeah, it was great. And uh, I really appreciate it. Like I said, I was really impressed with the way the Army handled it and I appreciated the way they did it. So that was nice. All right. So when do you find out about uh, Staff Sergeant Clint Romache's uh, Medal of Honor? Well, I got, you know... There was, like I said, there was some some talking about it maybe six months before, you know, got announced. <clears throat> and then um, I got a call from him some random afternoon and said, hey, you know, they're doing this. They, they upgraded it. And I think he'd heard the rumors, too. But, you know, that's one of the things. It is what it is until it is. Um. And so he calls me and, you know, he's like, Hey, they, they upgraded this. And obviously it's one of those things where you're awkward conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you're not going to say congratulations cause it's not that kind of a war. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's, they're, they're receiving that. I don't, I don't think anybody really goes out and try to earn it or, you know, it's not like that kind of, that kind of award. Yeah. It's and not so, like meeting your you sales know, goal for the quarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, so he called me and we talked about it for a while and that was good. And, and then, um, you know, he, he, they got a limited invite list out to the White House for the ceremony. And that was, it was cool to see everybody and be a part of the ceremony. And um, he handled it really, really well. And um, I've been, been super proud of the way he's managed all the stuff that comes with being a recipient and, and uh, super proud of him. Well, and then it was, what, about eight months later um, that Ty Carter gets his. Yeah, something like that. It was it was relatively quickly afterward. I don't know the specific. Uh, maybe I'm just really bad with time. Yeah, well, <laughs> it sort of goes by. But uh, it was February of 2013 for Clint Romaché, and then August of 2013 for Ty Carter. 
Wow, that's fast. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and and same thing. I unfortunately had some other things going on with a newer baby, and so I, I wasn't able to go out to to ties. Um, but I, you know, I had a chance to run into him maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago now in, in Alaska, and then a random encounter at an airport in D.C. Even more recent than that. That was bizarre. But um, you know, I think he's he's really um, kind of found himself a little bit since, you know, you know, in the last couple of years in the sense that he understands and really self-aware of some of the stuff and pretty, um, I, I've been impressed with his personal growth and where he's come from, from 10 years ago. So I think uh, he's done a good job with, with the responsibility that comes unfortunately with, uh, being a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, as time has passed, um, anything that keeps you up at night about this? Um, yeah, yeah. There, there's always things that are still difficult. Like, <laughs> um. You know, I think just how maybe it's the word unpredictable and and unknown the next minute really is, uh, and and how quickly things change from what you thought <clears throat> reality was to what it actually is. So it's probably about as detailed as I can make it sound in a really odd odd way. I mean, you've been asked to tell this story several times and we'll get into the book and the movie in a minute. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a Netflix, uh, you know, show called Medal of Honor that chronicled both Clint Romache and Ty Carter. Uh, and I'm pretty sure you were, you know, used uh, for that as well. Uh, but that said, y- you've, you've told this story before. Does it get easier to tell it? Does it get tougher to tell it? Do you do, do you, after telling it, does something pop back in your head a day later? No, I mean, it, I don't think it gets harder or easier. It's always been kind of the same. I think what I struggle with when I, I tell it is um, <clears throat> the things that I care about and I always want to make sure people understand are are not necessarily the things they want to hear. Because a lot of people just want to hear this this story and this, this, uh, and, and it might be what actually happened. Right. But I, what I always want people to walk away with is, is really how impressive soldiers are. Right. And how cool it is of what they're willing to do that most people are not willing to do. And I think we can get there, This you know, everybody can get to that same place of understanding what I'm trying to get across. Um, but sometimes it, it takes a little bit of effort to get there. And that, that's always what I want to talk about is not necessarily, Hey, we maneuvered here and we did this. And, and then this weapon system executed properly this way. And we dropped the a thousand pound bomb there. Those are details, right? And they're important details, but I don't think they're always as important to the, to the end point of the story, which is how amazing the American soldier is. Yeah, I mean, and and frankly, you know, without sort of breaking my arm, patting myself on the back, but that's kind of what this whole podcast is about, you know. I mean, it's it's 
everybody has a story um, and everybody who has been in combat has a particular point of view that is, frankly, you know, mostly vastly different from everybody else's. Um, you know, you talk to two people who are in the same engagement, they'll give you different point of views because they experience life differently. And so they respond to the same stimulus differently. And, and that, um, you know, and when you talk about how great the American soldier is, you know, that's what we hope to encapsulate. It doesn't matter whether you are a PFC or, you know, a lieutenant general. I, I think everybody brings something different to the table. And frankly, you know, some of the, some of the best stories we've told here on this podcast are just from E4s. You know, who give you yeah. the unabashed yeah. raw truth and don't really care and don't think, you know, like like senior officers do at a strategic level and a tactical level and, and you know, and, and worry about the, the, you know, the image and X, Y and Z. They just talk to you, you know, and, and I think yeah. that that gives you a certain perspective of of, you know, realism that isn't always there when we put things on TV and we, we, we tell these little, you know, vignettes and, of stories of, of combat and things of that nature that, that sell well. And, you know, they brief well on TV and everything, and it looks cool. But at the, in reality, at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, th- th- there's, there's much more to it than that. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. All right. So to that end, um, Jake Tapper of CNN writes the book, Outpost. Uh, they're making it into a movie or have made it into a movie that is coming out. Um, you, you've obviously known about other movies that have come out and other books that have been written. What were your feelings and thoughts on them doing this? You know, I, I, I'm I'm okay with it, right? I mean, um, one, you know, I don't get a, a say, right? We, you sure. Know, um, um, well, you do so, get a say if you wanted uh, to be part of it or not. Yes, I did, and and so I didn't really participate in the movie. Uh, I haven't seen the movie. Um, I hear, you know, my wife watched it. She, she said it was good. She she enjoyed watching it. Um, and generally speaking, I think the reviews are are have been supposedly pretty good. Um, you know, Roe wrote a book. Um, there's been a lot of stuff. I participated in, you know, the Netflix thing. You, you referenced the Medal of Honor, which was, which was actually really fun. Got to see some people I hadn't talked to in a while, and um, that was that was actually an enjoyable project to work on. They did a nice job. I mean, as far as the way they, they handled the conversational tone and how they went through it, I was. I was happy with that. And I think they did a good job highlighting in that whole series, the whole series, probably similar to what you're trying, you, you, you talked about, you accomplished talking to soldiers and really about what soldiers do. Right. And so I, that was fun. Um, and so yeah, Jake wrote the book and um, there's, there's a few other things out there, but generally speaking, you know, for the most part, as long as we're telling the story as best we possibly can, and we have the opportunity to kind of get to those those endpoints of what we like to make sure people come out with, uh, it's been good to be able to get out and talk to people and tell them this story, right? The conversation we're having. I, I like to have that conversation so that people can learn these names and who they are and all the great things um, that guys like Sergeant Gallegos did, right? I, I want them to know those things, or Specialist Mace. I, w- I want them to know these people. So um, generally speaking, I I've been happy with it. Well, and to that end, it kind of led me to uh, my second to last question about, you know, Thompson, Kirk, Scusa, Griffin, Martin, Gallegos, Hart, and Mace. Um, when you hear those names, what what goes on in your head and your heart? You know, um, you just kind of remember um, the good times of folks, right? I, I, I equated a lot to, the the army after the fact you only remember the good things or generally speaking you only remember the good things and even the bad things you remember in a more positive light the longer time goes on right 
And so for me, uh, I really look at um, the, you know, they weren't, you know, they were, um, they were fighting for each other. They were, you know, fighting for love of each other and, and not for anything else. And that's, that's a unbelievable honorable thing. And um, I appreciate their lives very, very much. And anything I could ever do for them is uh, not nearly as much as they already provided for me and, and a bunch of other soldiers and frankly, a bunch of people they don't know. So um, that's important. Finally, uh, you talked about your children. Um, do you, have you had the conversation in your head what you'll tell them the day they ask about what daddy did on October 3rd, 2009? Uh, no, I haven't figured how that goes yet. <laughs> <laughs> what is, uh, eventually, what, eventually I'll have to, uh, but to this point in time, I, I haven't got there yet. What have you told your wife about that day? Uh, you know, very similar conversations we had, right? Okay. I mean, she generally knows most uh, most of the story of, of everything else. You know, I try not to, to hide, uh, you know, anything. And, and, I mean, not everything always comes up, but generally knows uh, what what's out there. Well, Andrew, listen, um, you know, you're a very level-headed individual. Um, and I think that came across in a lot of your dealings on TV and, and, and documentaries about this. Um, and, you know, emotion kind of falls secondary to uh, the intellect in your mind. And, and I think that serves you well. Um, and I think that in handling this and the post handling of it and, and all the troubles that could come with this, you, you've allowed yourself to get to a place that's comfortable. And I think that's important for you, but it's an important lesson for everybody else who may be struggling with something to understand is to find that way, find that, 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 method that avenue that uh you're comfortable with the outcome of the things that have happened to that end i'll reiterate what i said again because it bears it your actions on that day saved a lot more lives uh, than the ones that were taken from us so i commend you um for what you have done uh awards and citations and everything aside you know a guy in uniform to guy in uniform you know i shake your hand and tell you thank you uh for what you did that day and thank you for continuing to be a great steward uh of a life of service and the military and the army and Certainly, you know, uh, nothing but best of luck to you, the wife, the kids, the family, and whatever your future endeavors are, man. It's just been an absolute pleasure getting to, to hear your story and, and hear you tell it and certainly, uh, you know, getting to know you a little bit for the last couple hours. Yeah, we well, really appreciate the time, and uh, thanks for having me on. And um, if there's ever, you know, for anybody out there when they're, when they're listening, you know, there's everybody's got something else going on. And... Uh, there's more than enough people that want to want to help you and, and want to help you get through to the next level. So, um, again, appreciate it. Thanks for the time. And if you ever need anything, give me a holler. Andrew Bunderman, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.